Welcome to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Snyder. And you know, this week, I had it all planned out, man. I had it. So I had two guests, husband and wife from Springfield College, Adam and Mary Kate Fate. And we had a great conversation, went through the entire hour, and I realized I didn't hit the record button. So, you know, I guess those things happen. First time for everything, even though we're coming up on 100 episodes, uh, we'll chalk that one up to just getting into too good of a conversation. So we're going to get them on next week. This week, I thought instead, I'm going to go back into the vault, into the archives, to the very first episode of the Zealous Podcast, when I invited Mike Boyle on to the show. So sit back. If you haven't heard the very first episode of Zealous, you're about to. Be sure to subscribe, follow us on Instagram, Rocky underscore Snyder, and here we go. Welcome to the Zealous Podcast, Rocky Snyder with Mike Boyle, and if you are not familiar with Mike, then you're probably just new to the industry, because Mike's been one of the leaders in the industry for so long. He has a great uh, resume behind him, and he has got an amazing facility in Woburn, Massachusetts. Now, the, the ironic thing is, is uh, Mike lives in my hometown, Reading, Massachusetts, and not far away from where I grew up. And uh, the way we pronounce Woburn is Woburn. And so in Woburn, you've got the Mike Boyle Strength Training Facility, and which I've been there. Mike, I, you, you may not know, I, I visited it. You were out of town. You were out of the facility. I just poked my head in. And man, I am just so impressed with what you've built there. How long have you had it, first of all? Well, that particular facility is about 12 years old. So we've been there since 2008. Uh, we've been in business for 23 or 24 years. We've actually been in in really four locations, primarily three, but we were in Winchester for, I think, 10 years prior. And then we were actually in Burlington for a bit. You would remember the old, the old Tennis 128 building was kind of where it started. Nope. And then that got sold and torn down and we ended up by Winchester Tennis Club for about 10 years. And then we've been 12 years in the location that we're in now. Now, before that, though, you were strength conditioning coach for BU Hockey as well as the Boston Bruins. So what other kind of uh, history or accolades brought you to basically where you are now? Well, it, you know, there's a lot of overlap because when we were starting out, and you you know this because you're, you're a generation younger than I am, but you're still... Oh, you're a yeah. handsome man. Thank you. That's nice. It's, yeah. it's true, both on both accounts. But um, <laughs> it was part, like, my Bruins thing was part time. I was at BU and I was working for the Bruins both at the same time because neither one of them was paying me, you know, a full time salary, a living wage by any stretch of the imagination. So in the '90s, and it was an amazing experience because obviously you're a Boston guy. I got to work with you know Ray Bork and Kim Mealy and you know, it was, you know, I get to meet all the old time Bruins that I grew up watching, you know, as a kid, you know, get to meet Jerry Cheevers and Don Marcotte and Kenny uh, Hodge, all these guys. So that was a pretty cool experience in 12 and 2012, 2013, I worked for the Red Sox. And that was also a really cool experience because I got to win a world series, which was awesome. And, you know, be in the dugout for a world series win, which, you know, is something that you don't, uh, you don't get to do in every career. There's some guys I know who've spent, yeah, one of my friends was cursing me because he spent like 20 years in Major League Baseball and he's never won a World Series. He's like, you do two years and you win a World Series. So um, I've been very lucky that I've been able to overlap all these things. And even at BU, I stayed at BU for 30 years. Even when I opened my own business, I kept staying with hockey 
because Coach Parker uh, wanted me like to stay there. So he made it so that I was uh, effectively a, I was an assistant strength and conditioning coach. I kind of gave up my head strength coach position to uh, my assistant at that time, a guy named Glenn Harris. That was yeah. 1997, I think, when we, the year we dropped football. We dropped football in 97. I kind of relinquished my position and became the assistant in 97 and then was just the hockey strength coach and then was kind of running my own business. So um, I've had a minimum of two jobs up until 2013. In 2013, it was the first time I said, okay, I'm not I'm not going to have another gig going on and I'm just going to run my foil strength and conditioning. But in a lot of ways that doesn't include kind of writing and speaking, you know, so I've never really, I've never had one job. Yeah. You're always on the go. Okay. So you tell me about the world series, which fantastic. Uh, I'd love to see the ring sometime. I actually held one of the Red Sox world series rings because a knuckleball pitcher was training with me. Uh, a little while in the off season or in the facility here. So he came back after the win, kind of let me. Ooh, Steven, right? Yeah. 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 Steven. Yeah. Oh yeah. Steven, yeah. Steven trained me for a while too, after he got hurt. Steven's yeah, a good guy. He's had, he's had a rough ride, unfortunately, but. Uh, yeah. But that's he, cool. Now here's what I want to know. Bean pot tournament. Not many people outside of new England know what the bean pot is, but uh, we're talking hockey tournament. How many, when you were BU strength conditioning, how many bean pot wins tournament wins did you have? Oh, I bet 20 out of the 30 years we won it. We, we, were, in the, we were in the final every year but once. No they, kidding. Yeah, they, oh, yeah. They took it. They started calling it the Jack Parker Invitational after a while because no matter whether we were good or, you know, we were always good during that time period, but we, we were always in the final game. And I bet we won 20. I would, I'd have to look it up to be certain, but I would not be surprised if we won 20 bean pots in 30 years because we won a bunch. We had a couple of strings of four in a row. Where you know classes, you know, didn't lose a bean pot during wow. their uh, their kind of BU. At least one, and I think two groups of kids didn't never lost one. So it was BCBU, Harvard, and was it Northeastern? Northeastern. Yep. And Northeastern actually has won twice, I think, in the last three years after winning only once since the eighties. They won huh. one uh, you know, in eighty something and then didn't win for a really long time. If you get the BUBC final on that second Monday night, the place is just packed to the gills it's the it's the social event of the season if you're a a business person in boston you want to be at the bean pot and be seen and talk to people sometimes there aren't enough people in the seats because people are so busy socializing <laughs> socializing yeah that's what we used to call it too uh so yes you've made this transition pretty well from obviously very hockey centric to so many other sports of course in your facility you get a lot of the pros and the the aspiring athletes coming in and and not just with, of course, Bruins, but you've got Red Sox, uh, potentially Celtics. I'm not sure if you had any Celtics players training with you. I wouldn't be surprised if you did. Of course, Patriots are there. But uh, beyond that, Olympic athletes, it, it seems like, you know, for, for many in, in the Northeast, this, this is the place to train. You've really built up quite, uh, quite a process there. And it is. It, it's an amazing system that you have developed. A, and I'm sure it's a system that's in process, and you're always kind of tweaking it. And I'm curious, what are some of the tweaks that you've recently made with conditioning and with your facility? Are there any standouts? Well, the big standout is just the COVID adaptations that we've had to make. We've had to move to uh, a, what we would call a pod system. I was in there. I had a lacrosse player actually from not far from you, from I think Appleton, which is near uh, Palo Alto, near Stanford. Yeah. Um, 
was in today and I was showing them we basically had we've always had sort of an assembly line kind of approach but now we've had to really make assembly line socially distanced so we have had uh, you know our warm-up area is 12 foot wide lanes and we've got 12 foot wide lanes for eight people so we've got almost 8,000 square feet for warm-up so that we can do our warm-up our speed work our plyos all that stuff but everybody's in their own lane nobody touches anybody else weight room is basically 24 14 by 14 pods that we've set up so we've got eight olympic lifting stations and eight kind of dumbbell stations and then eight racks and we've had to establish even a more distinct rotation than we ever had to before before we could kind of let people wander around a little bit and now it's literally the definition of staying in your lane like stay in your lane you, you can't get out of your lane you've got to um you know you've got to be able to follow this process so that's the biggest thing but the other things that we've changed i think we've really changed our speed development program i've been very heavily influenced by a guy named tony holler who is a high school or was a high school track coach in illinois just retired last year very if i showed you a picture of tony holler you'd say no wonder you like him he looks like you you know he's 61 years old balding with glasses it's like okay uh my kind of guy but he um he wrote an article that i that someone had sent me called record rank and publish and basically said that if you're trying to develop speed, but you're not timing your athletes, you're not going to develop speed. And it, it was a little bit of a head scratch for me because I was like, well, we sprint, we jump, you know, we lift, we do all this stuff. But I can honestly say I was never happy with our speed results. I would say I was not unhappy, but I never thought like, oh my God, we're doing an unbelievable job. We're killing this. Gotcha. Um, and so we started timing and timing has become a huge part of what we're doing. So we time everybody twice a week in some type of flying 10 yard dash. And you use and that as an assessment, like a, a, a metric or parameter to know what their volume and intensity should be. This is what's interesting is that I think what we've done with sprinting is we've undervalued sprinting as an actual training tool. I think we saw sprinting as a test, something that we do to measure, like you said, Oh, you know, where are we? But I don't think we've looked at the idea of, moving consistently at eight meters a second or in that neighborhood is a really powerful, I listened to your podcast with Anthony, when you think about gait and you think about movement, trying to get someone to move as fast as they can, we have found, and this has been my last year of talks, to be very self-organizational. It almost, it's like the act of sprinting teaches sprinting because when someone sprints against the clock, they get very direct feedback. Was that good or bad? Right. And then if they try something else, they get very direct feedback. Was that better or worse? You know, we're looking at, and it's one of the, one of the things that Tony Pollard had said was that his sprinters that play football lift, his sprinters that don't play football don't lift. He said, I don't think lifting has a lot to do with getting faster. And that, you know, all of this stuff was very thought provoking for me because I, I um, when I went back and created a presentation, you know, one of the things I did is I talked about like Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson, you know, one guy, um, Johnson, a, an avid weightlifter and every, you know, a steroid guy and everybody talked about his lifts, you know, 600 and something squat, 365 bench press, blah, blah, blah. Lewis kind of disdainful of the weight room and it never spoke at all at length about the weight room or about what his lifts were or how he did. And yet they were almost identical sprinters in terms of time. They dominated the, the races and were within hundreds of a second of each other, almost every race they were in. And I said, the common denominator there is sprinting. Yeah. 
So you had one guy who wasn't a big weightlifter, one guy who was a big weightlifter. So obviously the strength coaches in us all became kind of Ben Johnson, Charlie Francis guys. Like that's the way to do it. It was confirmation bias. It, you know, it made it agreed with what we did. But I started to look at that and think, wow, maybe that's not the answer that we thought it was. And maybe sprinting is the real answer. So we've made sprinting a really central part of what we're doing. So that's, that's another really significant change. The other thing, and then he said conditioning, we're doing a lot less conditioning. Because again, the kids, we're seeing a lot of high school, middle school kids who are really overscheduled to begin with. We used to really be conditioning fanatics and, you know, r- running shuttles and riding a bike and doing slideboard and doing all this stuff, you know, try, trying to get our kids in shape. But now, like when I start looking at my son and his friends, they probably average seven one hour sessions a week of low intensity conditioning and or games, basically practice. You know, when I look at my son, there's, there's two hockey practices a week. There's one lacrosse practice a week. There's generally at least one lacrosse game. And there's generally two hockey games, you know, in their fall kind of preparation season. Those kids don't need a lot of conditioning. Right. They probably need you to fill the top end with sprinting and maybe some 10 second interval stuff, some really high intensity stuff. But we've gotten away from the kind of older energy system approach of, hey, let's get these guys in shape. So those have been like the three big changes. That's interesting. And and you mentioned the Olympic lifts and you've got your eight stations in the pods and everything. And I understand the, the use and, and why we utilize Olympic lifting, that explosive vertical displacement, full body action. And, and the sprinting, of course, now we've got just like you mentioned, the gate mechanics at full bore and they'll clean up themselves to some degree. Uh, but the thing that I've gotten away from and the thing that I've really uh, just really liked hearing you say is, is how you've also gotten away from the, a lot of the bilateral or sagittal plane biased movements. I mean, it all depends upon the athlete. Granted, if they're going to be a power lifter, then they need to do power lifts. And if they're going to be competitive and uh, bodybuilding, then they need to do a bodybuilding program. But so many programs up until this point, probably I'd say maybe, you know, five to 10 years ago, were looking like bodybuilding programs and powerlifting programs for any sport. We would just select a movement that kind of resembled what they were doing on a court or a pitch or, or ice or something. But you've recently said, you know, I, we do a lot more unilateral training. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Like you came out some time ago to the chagrin of others and you said, uh, we don't squat. We just, I don't have people squat. And I think people ran with that and, and to any degree they can, but I'd love to just talk about the concept of minimizing a parallel squat and the utilization of, of single leg or unilateral strength training. What do you got to say about yeah. that? One of the things you, it, it's hard to imagine, but, that statement was 2009. <laughs> it was 11 years ago that I said, uh, you know, we're not, we're done squatting. And as you said, we, had, we were in a lot of ways conventional. We did what everybody else did. We did back squats and we did bench press and we did, we were always hang clean people. We never Olympic lifted from the floor. I never went that direction. But um, I was very heavily influenced in the beginning by guys like Vern and then eventually guys like Gary Gray and as I started to understand functional anatomy, I had this conversation yesterday with someone on another podcast. My idea of functional training is the application of what we know about functional anatomy to training. 
And what we know about functional anatomy tells us that things are very different in unilateral stance. And as I've studied this more, I think that bilateral stance actually probably makes you a worse athlete. If you look at, you know, if, if bilateral training did what we think it did, and I've said this numerous times, there'd be a lot more power lifters in the Olympics because we've become very strength focused and we've got this idea that the more strength we have, the better we're going to be. And I look at that and think, then why aren't these guys that are the strongest men in the world, the best athletes in the world? And I think in some ways, neurologically, like, you know, you said, when you think about gait and opposition and all these things that we're doing, bilateral training, we feel like when you look at the bilateral deficit idea, unilateral training is limited. The body does not like bilateral activity. It's not natural. And it's a really hard thing for people to accept, but I think it's true. And there have been studies when you look into kind of the bilateral deficit stuff. Some people think that the, the, you actually self-limit in bilateral exercise because of that, because it's neurologically confusing. The body doesn't feel right when it does it. And we find that like our, our guys, when we do unilateral training, when you really start to explore unilateral strength training, what you see is particularly with the lower body, the, the bilateral deficit is so incredibly obvious. And, and you start to realize that, you know, it's uh, Kevin Carr that works with me, had a great analogy. He said, the way the strength training field is, it's like in strength training, if someone said, you can have a Big Mac and it's $5, or you can have a half a Big Mac for $2. And there are some people like, no, I, only, I don't want mine cut in half. You know, I'm willing to pay a dollar more to, to have the whole Big Mac instead of, you know, giving me the two halves and saving a buck. Like that's not, and, you know, I, start, I, I guess I coined the term myself the other day. I talked about the orthopedic cost of exercise. And I think in what we would call conventional training, the orthopedic cost can be extremely high in terms of the wear and tear. And we see that because a lot of the people that disagreed with me in 2009, you know, the go heavier, go home kind of hardo types, a lot of those guys have now come around. I actually have, I have a group of uh, guys that I've become friendly with and I, I call them the charter members of the, I used to think Mike Boyle was a pussy club because <laughs> guys, these are guys who in 2009 made fun of me and now in 2020 are coming out in podcasts and saying, wow, I used to think Mike Boyle was such a pussy. I used to think he was, you know, he was a joke, you know, talking about unilateral training. And now I realize either their own experience or through their athlete experience, I was right. And I tell everybody, I said, you're all going to realize I'm right. <laughs> it's just going to be a matter of time. It, you know, I have the advantage of 40 years almost in the field. I'm in year 39 and longer of actually coaching because I was coaching powerlifters when I was in college. So I've been coaching people for more than 40 years. And I started out as a competitive powerlifter. You know, I've been down that bilateral road right. and I've suffered for it, you know, back pain, shoulder surgery, knee problems. You know, I've had you know, all kinds. I mean, I used to have 25 years of back pain. Yeah. I, that, you know, I had, that should scream something for most people, right? Right. But the problem is it does, it screams, you know, get it fixed so you can do it again. You know, and <laughs> I, I have so many of these sort of, I said, uh, I'm, I'm an analogist. I love analogies. And it's um, slamming your hand in a car door. And I said, if you slammed your hand in a car door and broke four of your fingers and told me that you couldn't wait for your fingers to heal, so you could again slam them in a car door, I would not think you were very bright. <laughs> but that's the approach of a lot of lifters. It's amazing ah. to hear someone say, 
oh, you know, I ruptured a disc in my back, you know, and I'm, I'm I, had, I literally have a, a guy that I blocked on Twitter the other day because he's doing Squattober <laughs> on his replaced, his replaced hip. He's talking about, hopefully I get, you know, I hope I get back my squat technique in time to, for Squattober. And I'm looking, thinking like, like you had a hip replacement, you know, you, you had to get a joint replaced and it probably had something to do with squatting. Why would you go back to that activity? Why would you not try to find, you know, a more joint friendly activity, an activity with a lower orthopedic cost that might get you the same, or in my case, I think greater benefit. That's the difference now, because when you think about the idea of function and when you said, you know, we get on, you know, you know how to train, we get on one leg, suddenly now, you know, quadratus lumbar becomes a stabilizer, glute medius becomes a stabilizer, adductors become a stabilizer. All these muscles have to stabilize in unilateral stance. They're kind of just hanging out in bilateral stance. They're not doing a whole lot when you're squatting because right. they don't need to. No, you, no, you've got the, the other foot's on the transverse ground. plane. Go on. Uh, there's just a gag order placed on two dimensions of space because all you're concerned with really is, is flexion and extension. Right. And I tell everybody that unilateral exercise is triplanar. Yes. Because as soon as you put yourself on one foot, you are now forced to stabilize in the frontal plane and you're forced to stabilize in the transverse plane. Exactly. And so even if you did sagittal exercise, like a lot of our stuff is still primarily sagittal, except it's not, you know, when you really look at function and you say, okay, well, what is the, what's your glute medius supposed to do? Well, it's not an abductor. It's really a pelvic stabilizer. It's, it's intention is to keep your pelvis at a certain height in unilateral stance. And it's going to be helped by your QL on the other side. So, you know, you've kind of got like basically two hangers, you know, one of them's pulling up, one of them's pulling down, the pelvis stays where it is. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the function of that muscle in frontal plane stability. When you think about hip rotators, and I always say, you think about glutes, I always talk about glutes and adductors. Adductors are internal rotators, glutes are external rotators. The neutralizing effect of an adductor acting, you know, adductor magnus acting as extensor, glute max acting as extensory is a joint, a, a net cancellation of the rotary forces, right? right? And so you end up, you go forward, but that's a triplanar activity because you've got something trying to pull you in one direction and something having to pull you in the opposite direction in order to make you go straight. These are kind of unique things that we don't see in a mechanical model like a car. No, and you know, they're, they're braking mechanisms, right? They're, they're going right. to help in decelerating the forces when you go into pronation. So when we're talking about movement compared to single leg stance exercises, you know, we're going to see, yes, they're stabilizers when you're balancing on one leg. But as soon as you put that body in motion, it is going to be all about reducing ground forces and then loading into that tissue to propel you to the next stage. Right. And, right. and you know, I remember the old NASM stuff used to talk about... Um, you know, movers, stabilizers, neutralizers, you know, and you've got to be able to look at something and think. So, you know, you can, you know, your glute medius would be a stabilizer, but your adductor magnus and your glute max would have neutralizer functions because they're, they'd be canceling out their rotational moments so that you didn't run, you know, in abduction. And then, you know, we, so even in function, you know, hamstring, I always thought, you know, we're working on eccentric hamstring function because it's the same thing. The hamstring has a huge eccentric function during the swing phase. As you know, I, I kind of show people like, you know, what we would call like drum major running, where you're running and letting your legs kick out in front of you. You know, I said, that's what you'd run like if your hamstrings didn't work. There you go. But you don't because your hamstring acts as an eccentric or if you listen to Franz Bosch, isometric, but in either way, it's a break. 
you know, in the, in the swing phase, you know, you've got a muscle that's actually functioning again. It's a, a neutralizer. It's trying to prevent leg extension. You know, you look at that and think, you know, and people really, you get it because you understand function, but a lot of times you try to talk to people about this and they just kind of look at you with that sort of blank look like, huh? Well, and, I think that's, that would be, that's the way we were taught how muscles work from a concentric model. You know, we were always looking at a hamstring that it's a hip extensor or a knee flexor because we were taught that's how muscle works is through shortening. But through movement, it's so much more eccentric loading with a very short concentric component. So really for me, like you say, uh, a hamstring is going to decelerate forward leg swing. Which, so we're talking about hip flexion and knee extension. And that hamstring is going to work in different components, depending upon which position the pelvis is in. Like that's, that's the one thing I, I don't want to go on a side note, but we talk about hamstring stretching and most people are going to try and extend their leg out to extend the knee, which will lengthen that hamstring. But then the pelvis, when we look at how a body moves, that pelvis should be posteriorly tilting because of the mass of that leg swinging forward. But everyone's been taught to tilt the pelvis forward. And then next to you got this screaming, burning hamstring stretch all because we've looked at an anatomy book the wrong way. So just to go off on a tangent to the oh, side. No, no, we, we always, uh, I'm constantly talking to people when we talk about functional training about the idea of sort of dead person anatomy versus live person anatomy. I remember my first Gary Gray course and I feel badly because I feel like Gary in some ways has lost his way and has gone a little bit, uh, you know, is a little bit too out there now. But in the 90s, the things that he was saying were, Brilliant. you know, it was like atom splitting in terms of yeah. he was, you know, talking about the ideas and, and people just were looking going, I mean, I can remember one, I always remember the, the people, you know, the meathead types, the bodybuilders that would be in the audience would just be shaking their head. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or the old single joint physical therapist, the people who were isokinetic people. I still argue with the isokinetic people to this day. <laughs> about like we won't i would never do a leg extension i'm like there is no point to do a leg extension and i'm like there's no point to do a leg curl lying leg curl i said those are completely useless exercises and i'll get physical therapists who will be adamant about you know an acl rehab you've got to do short arc quads and i'm like i mean that muscle why would you bother asking a muscle to do something that funk never does and neurologically it never does exactly. and then wonder why the person has patellofemoral complications and you say, well, you have patellofemoral complication because you know you you you've created an axis of rotation that's totally wrong. And I always say, you know, I have, like I said, I have all my standard cliches. I'm like, you know, the only guy who needs leg extension is a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. You know what I mean? Like this, there's not a lot of times that 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 would be functional. And I always say to people, like, how often do you think, you know, I'm going to kick my own ass? I'm going to kick myself in the ass. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lay on the floor and try to kick myself in the butt. And you kind of look and think, eh, probably never. Like, I don't think that, and you're like, right, exactly, never. Like that never happens. That muscle never does that. So there's absolutely no rational reason for you to do it. No, no, the, the reason those came are, out was just aesthetic purposes to build a muscle's hypertrophy for bodybuilding, right? Exactly. But it but doesn't the carry over to actual real world movements. Now here's speaking of real world too, because I, I could freaking rage on that topic all day long with you, uh, with with oh, mechanized PT and all. That. But here's something that I don't think we talk enough about, 
is the structural degradation in terms of structural integrity with every passing generation that walks into our training facilities. And how are we accommodating that? Meaning that we've got now COVID obviously, so you got a lot of kids and, and adults that are online sitting on their asses and just for hours and hours a day while their body conforms and adapts to that environment. And then they think magically there's a reset button that's gonna pull them back into proper alignment and they're gonna to go to the gym and everything's going to work according to plan as the way that the, the exercise was designed to be performed. But most of the people that are coming in, cause you're, you're okay, you've been doing it for about 40. I've been doing it for about 30. Those people that we are training at the early onset of our careers were structurally more sound than most people that walk into our gyms today, including the top level athletes. And yet I believe personally, and I'll throw out a blanket statement, we load too soon for most people. They don't own the movement before most load is put on. And that just sends them into improper patterns, compensation, and you wanna talk about an orthopedic bill or, or cost of that, that's gonna send it to the ceiling. So how, I'm curious, how are you addressing that? Well, I think one, you know, we always like with our kids, when we have our kids in the gym, I always tell our coaches, I don't care if these kids get strong. I care how to lift. So we definitely don't load too soon. If anything, the criticism of us with our athletes is too conservative. Yeah. I said, so with our adults, um, you know, we used to always say body weight before external resistance, but I've modified that to the point of body weight, lower body exercise before external resistance and external resistance, upper body exercise before body weight exercise. So if you look at it and think most of our adults are not capable of a push up or a chin up, but they're very capable of a body weight squat or a body weight split squat or um, a reaching one leg straight leg deadlift type of motion. So we've again, you know, we are um, low loaders. We are, we're the criticism of us, like I said, is that we're, you know, we're, we're too conservative. We don't push people hard enough, that kind of thing. But as you said, most people that you look at are not ready and most adults, like I look at most adults and think they should probably never do conventional strength training. Our adults don't bench press. We do not do a barbell bench press ever with our adults. No one squats with a bar on their back. Very, very few, like we'll do some kettlebell sumo style deadlifting in the beginning, but we don't really progress it. You know, we never get to like, we don't do anything that people would equate with heavy conventional strength training. I don't let our adults Olympic lift. I always say adults make crappy Olympic lifters. There's too much too much water under the bridge for an adult to become a capable Olympic lifter. Yet, if you flip the coin around, our kids all bench press, our kids all deadlift, our kids all, you know, do relatively heavy, heavy goblet squats, our kids all Olympic lift. Because I feel like it's the, it's kind of the ABC effect. You know, these kids need to learn the fundamentals of the weight room. Whereas the adults, you're probably past that point. Like they can't, you can't teach them the fundamentals of the weight room. They've gone undergone too much negative change, but you know, it's like, you can't get toothpaste back in the tube. You know, you can certainly train an adult and get them better, but to take them back to these sort of beginner remedial strength training exercises is probably a mistake, particularly if you continue to load them and you'll end up like CrossFit, you'll end up with tons of injured people who are addicted to exercise and, and in, probably truest sense are addicted to injuring themselves <laughs> yeah and here i sit in santa cruz the uh, the home 
of CrossFit itself, but uh, we'll, we'll pass over that. The thing that we do with the adults is we look for what we'll coin the dark zones. Where is it they don't move well into? Because those are the areas that are restricted, that are limiting their potential. And I wanna be able to access these places because it will create a chain reaction all the way through their body to make them more resilient. And so instead of really loading them heavily, like you say, I, I actually really like what you just said about, we, we get them to do lower body movements, unloaded, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, lower body movements. When it comes to upper body, we generally load those with bands and dumbbells because they can't handle their own body weight, but we get them to handle their own body weight in their, in their legs first. That's, that's a nice kind of paradigm there that I, I really appreciate. And, and I, I gotta say, I, I continually run into problems with people that have expectations that you're coming here to train and therefore you have to lift a dumbbell or a barbell. But if we put them into positions that they do not move into very well, it kicks their butt and they are blown away by how we can tap into those weak spots and actually how it transfers into their golf swing, their tennis, their, their running. It's, it's remarkable. So where, where, are you, where are you going here? And you know, you've, you've got Perform Better. You've been, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed over the years listening to, to all your presentations there. And of course, you've got the Strength Coach podcast where uh, there's some great insight and information there, but through the COVID waters and, and kind of navigating through this and hopefully onto new horizons, do you, do you have plans? Where do you see everything going? You know, it's interesting. I, I, we're planning that it's never going to go back only because I think that's the way that you have to plan to be able to move forward. This is how we're going to train for, you know, the rest of the time that we're here. We're trying to develop a business model that will work with social distancing, no matter what else happens. And we were very lucky in that, you know, we were in the online space prior to this. We had just moved our certification online, which was something I didn't want to do. And now ends up being one of the smartest things that we've done in terms of we partnered with these guys at Inspire 360 and, and got a really good version of our cert online. We filmed the entire cert. We filmed Kevin Carr teaching an entire cert. So anybody that watches it really has to watch the whole seminar as if they were there and they have to submit a video practical. So, you know, they get everything that they would get if they had done it live, but they can do it from anywhere in the world and they can do it during this time. And that's, in all honesty, it saved that business. That business would have just ceased to exist during oh, COVID and instead, We've, uh, you know, our numbers are as good probably as when we were doing live events. What was your reluctance of taking it online? I'm just curious. I just felt like it cheapened it. I felt like it would just be another cert that, you know, you could pay for. Because I feel like that's what happens now is that you just buy letters. You know, it's kind of like playing Scrabble where you purchase the letters. So you can just, you know, oh, I want, you know, CFSC. Okay, that's 800 bucks. If I pay my 800 bucks, I get it because... You just, you know, it's all sort of attendance points, really. And I didn't want it to be that way. And so, you know, one of the things that we did is we, you have to pass the pretest before you can take the course. So we send you out the study material. If you don't get a passing grade on the pretest, you can't access the course until you've gotten a passing grade on the pretest. So we did that to eliminate what I call, and you would know, the, the seminar killer. 
the person who shows up for the seminar and is woefully unprepared and asks a million questions because they don't know the material. And, and they ruin the seminar, right? Like you have that person here and you think you shouldn't be here because you're not ready for this, but they want to get their, you know, whatever their $500 worth. So they're going to slow this thing down to a snail's pace. So we kind of eliminate that person from the beginning. And then what we do is we always had a practical at the end, you have to pass the practical. So not only do you have to know the information, but you actually have to be able to move. You've been at Perform Better Seminars. And one of the things we realized is that there are people, whatever, certified personal trainers who can't skip. And I think that's a problem. You know, if you're supposedly a teacher of movement and I look at you and you do like the Frankenstein skip where you're same arm, same leg, I'm thinking either you've got a really severe neurological problem or you just don't move very well. Um, in either case, I don't want you teaching my athletes when you can't skip. And, you, you know, we teach like skipping and crossover skipping and a lot of this stuff. And you look and I mean, it looks like a, you know, a Chinese arithmetic class with some of these people trying to figure out how to, you know, how to skip and side skip and crossover skip. And, you know, and we're trying to teach hopping and jumping. And I mean, but we want these people like you got to be able to do it. If you can't do it, you can't teach it or you're or. I won't say you can't teach it because I've kind of railed against that in my own world, but it's going to be much harder if you're not at least an effective demonstrator. I don't think you have to be strong. I always say that I think, you know, I don't look the part anymore. I'm not the type of guy that you look at and go, Oh, wow, he's a strength coach. That might be last on the list of professions. If I get, you know, if we played, what's my line and I stood there in front of people, there's no chance that uh, anybody's going with strength coach for me. Well, I'm aspiring uh, yeah. to look just like you later in life, Barry, in that, in that five or 10 year gap that we have between us. Uh, I got the glasses. I'm just not wearing them right now. And the haircut's coming along pretty well, at least on the top here. So, yeah, I got you. Yeah. All you got to do is turn it all off. That's, that's the key. Once you do it, you'll be liberated. You'll never want hair again. And whenever people say to me about getting hair transplants, I'm like, who the hell would want hair? <laughs> it's absolutely the most overrated accessory in the history of men pain in the ass and so yep. you've got you've got an amazing internship program in your facility and aside from the certifications that you have how does that work for for like the the listening audience that are not maybe not even in the northeast but maybe willing to travel there and they want to apply to be an intern how, how would that work for for getting over to Woburn? well it's interesting ours is always different than everybody else's one they have to go online and apply which everybody does but the big thing with us is you have to send a video because the thing that I realized after a couple of years of doing this was that on occasion, we, you know, we purchased a few potted plants, but they weren't going to make very good coaches. And it was because they looked really good on paper. They had great resumes. They did great in school. They were really smart, but they weren't, co they weren't capable of coaching anybody. So then I, after we had a couple of these just total disasters where people showed up and so, you know, obviously the person who's selecting the interns always said, but you should see their resume. Their recommendations were unbelievable. Their resume was unbelievable. And I started to think, okay, one thing we have to realize from a collegiate standpoint is we can't trust resumes and we can't trust recommendations. I always feel like if your teachers really liked you, you're probably not my ideal intern. Because <laughs> um, the best ones I've had, sometimes I, one of the best female intern I ever had, her teachers literally said to me, she was a Springfield College girl, and her teacher said, I don't know. You know, she doesn't like school very much. She needs to do an internship. I don't know if you're going to like her. She worked her ass off. She came from a family, you know, that had done construction and she was a worker. 
and she was a great coach. She just wasn't good in school. And I started to realize, okay, I don't need people that are good in school. I need people that are good with people. And so now, now it's a video. You have to explain on video why you want to be an intern at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. And you'd better project some personality because if you don't, you won't get the internship. You know, if I get this monotone, I want to be an intern at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning because I really like working out and I have really big muscles and I can bench press 300 pounds. You're like, eh. You know, that guy's, you know, his, he gets deleted. Everything gets, his file, his video, everything gets deleted. <laughs> but if somebody, we had one girl uh, who literally jumped out of a box. Like she was, the video started, you know, with pointing at like this big carton. And she came like springing out of the carton. I was like, okay, she's in. I don't, I don't know when they have asked me like, where's she from? Where'd she go to school? Was she a phys ed major? What was she? I said, but I want the girl that came out of the box. Because <laughs> if you look at that and think, you know, this is someone who's, you know, who's bright, creative, energetic. And that's what we need in our field. I, I always say to people, and I've said that it gets to be cliche with me, but I always say, I can make you smarter, but I can't make you nicer. I can't give you a personality transplant, but I can make you learn the material and at least enough of the material where you'll be an adequate coach. You may never be the thinker behind the program, but you don't have to be. You can be you know, the assembly line worker who's implementing the program. And you may never really get a great grasp on why we're doing what we're doing. That's great. Because I, I feel the same way when people come in with certifications and resumes. That first tells me, okay, you know just enough to be dangerous to the people that are here, right? And irritating. <laughs> it is. And I don't really care what you know because you're going to learn what it is I want you to know. And if you happen to have some of that information, great. But you better be able to motivate, stimulate, and, and get people to do things that they may not want to do, first of all, or maybe they do, but you got to make them do it better. So, uh, yeah, the coaches that stand out are, are never the ones that, that came in necessarily with the 4.0 in the, in the gleaming resume. They're the ones, actually, clients who have been with us for years have at some point in time been encouraged hey go ahead and get your certification so you can hang that up on the wall but we want you to coach here because you've been through this you know how it works and you're a living embodiment of the change that it can occur and and we want you to be a symbol of that here too so did you have have you had uh clients yourself that have turned around and become uh, we do we have a couple we have a couple that are working for us right now i mean we have one woman who is a legitimate genius i mean the mit grad you know, has, has founded her own company and is working for us now because she likes, she loves the fitness field. Okay. And, you know, she's awesome, but, you know, it's, I, I, sometimes I feel bad, <laughs> but, but she loves it. So, yeah, we've definitely had people like that. And it's sometimes with us, it's athletes too. Sometimes I'll have athletes and think, this is what you should be doing. When you, you know, when your career is over, um, you know, you're going to make a really good coach. And so, you know, some of my, uh, some of my first, interns and coworkers and people like that were just our former athletes who had some inclination that they wanted to coach. And I sort of uh, coerced them into coming and working with me in the business. So we've had a bunch of those too. So it's been very good. Very cool. I want to go back because yeah. I know we're not going to have that much time. I, when you talk about the unilateral stuff, I just want to mention there's a guy named Alex Natera, who is an Australian rules football coach who did, and this is stuff that we've been playing with this summer when you talk about things that are different, but um, they did some research. He was at, um, I think it's called Aspire 
or depending on how you choose to pronounce it, but they did research on looking at squatting versus single leg squatting. And in his research, so it's super interesting, two things. One, uh, he started to look at what percentage of your body weight are you squatting when you actually single leg squat? And I don't know, have you read Range, David Epstein's new book, Range? Yes, yes, I have. Okay. So in Range, he talks about the idea of undiscovered connections, right? That's one of the things that, that they highlight in the book. The undiscovered connection in unilateral training is that this guy goes to a study on pilots to try to determine how much weight is in your torso. Because when they were looking at seats, you know, and being in the plane and that kind of stuff, um, they determined basically that um, I think it was 64% of your weight was torso from, from your butt up, whatever was in the seat was 64% of your body weight on average. So that leaves you with no 68 because it leaves you 32 for your lower body. 32% is your lower body, which means that each leg individually is 16%. So if you take 16% and 68, you get 84% of your body weight when you do a single leg squat. That's what you're going to single leg squat with. Gotcha. Not half of your body weight, but 84% of your body weight, right? So what they did with those numbers is they then looked at force plate numbers and they realized that, so if you could do a body weight single leg squat, you were effectively a body weight back squatter. So, you know, if I weigh 180, if I can do a single leg squat, that means I could squat 180. Gotcha. If I can squat 50% of my body weight, so if I can do a single leg squat with 90 pounds, you know, whatever, dumbbells, chains, vest, whatever it is, I'm a double body weight squatter. If I can do 100% of my body weight in single leg squat, I'm a triple body weight squatter. 100% of your body weight is tough, but we're trying to push, we're really pushing with our athletes now to get to that 50% number because that's the number for a lot of times when people said, well, how strong is strong enough? People like, you know, double body weight back squat, strong enough. So now I'm like, Okay, 0.5 body weight single leg squat then, based on Alex's data, is strong enough. And so we're trying to push our athletes up into that area. And we it's been giving us some, it's great because it gives us some target. Sure. In the summer, I start looking at guys and thinking, okay, you know, I got guys that weigh 200. I want you to, you got to get to 100. You got to be able to single leg squat, you know, whatever. If we're looking at 100, you know, maybe it's like, okay, you know, 80 for three or 85 pounds for three, whatever it is. And, you know, that'll give you a one RM of a hundred and that'll give you that double body weight squat number that we're looking for. So uh, that's one of the things that we've started to do. That is, I think really interesting because I do believe in strength. And I think that's where people get confused when you start talking about unilateral training, people think, well, you don't strength train. Yeah. And, and I want people to understand that's not the case with us at all. We, if you come in, people are always surprised at our gym at how strong everybody is because they are always like, oh, I thought you were like a functional guy, you know, and they, they equate functional with weak. Like, oh, I thought you were like a weak, a weak dumbbell waving guy. And I'm like, I'm not a weak dumbbell waving guy. I, uh, but I do believe in this idea of applying functional anatomy to training. And, and that means, particularly from a lower body standpoint, unilateral training, like upper body, I can make a lot of cases for bilateral upper body training, because in sports, there are lots of situations where you get two hands on somebody and push them, sure. like you would in a bench pressing type situation. That's not uncommon in sport. But when you say, how often in sport does somebody run on two legs? You're like, um, no, you can't do that. Like, that's not possible, right? There's no two legged running. You know, that would be like jumping, really. Right. And, you know, I would say it's like 
you know, rabbits jump, people hop, really, because, you know, people are going to be purely unilateral. And I, you know, I tell people, the only people that are bilateral are rowers. They have, they occupy almost a completely unique position in the sports world because they really are bilateral. But right. everybody else, you know, except the, if you're thinking about, you know, race car drivers or something, but there's very few people that are going to be doing something that is in essence, primarily bilateral. You know, you, people will argue, well, in basketball, you know, yeah, you may jump occasionally off two legs, you know, the, in volleyball, you may jump occasionally off two legs, but if you really look at the number of times that that, that actually happens, it's really low. Yeah. I, you know, with that, the whole functional thinking that they're weak, we've got uh, one woman just came in not too long ago. She's been training with us on a regular basis throughout the week. And what we do is functional training. It's really dependent upon person's posture and their their gait patterns that dictate what they're going to be lifting and, and the dark zones we're going to try and expose but she went to some ufc gym up in the bay area and for some group workout and it was just super high intensity and she kept right with them and people were just looking at her because she was just busting it out and said so what what crossfit gym or what what ufc do you belong to she's like i no i don't i just go to this little hole in the wall in santa cruz and we don't do any of this exercise. It's kind of neat, but no, we don't do any of this stuff. So the carryover has just been phenomenal. Um, but we're we're totally up against the clock here, Mike. And I really appreciate your time and hanging back with me. And I honestly, I honestly wish I was in Reading right now. We could run up to Kitty's restaurant, get a nice Italian lunch or something. They're still around, aren't they? Is Kitty's around? They're still there, yeah, they are. Forever. They have outstanding pizza, which is oh. not something you would expect kitties to have. Maybe I'll order some online and, and see if they'll deliver. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, but next time, I, I'm honestly, uh, my, my folks, my family lives up on Hampton, New Hampshire there, right at the, the North Beach there at the wall. I go and surf there when, I, when I'm visiting. But now i got another place to, to knock on the door, and I, I hope you answer next time I'm in town. But I really appreciate your time here. And... Uh, I, I, I don't know when Perform Better is, is what's going to happen next year, but I hope our paths cross real soon. Well, I hope the same. We can get to meet in person. Thank you. And that's a wrap for the Zealous Podcast. Uh, gee, got to say thanks to Mike Boyle, Mike Boyle Strength Coach. Check out all of his stuff online and uh, the Strength Coach Podcast with Anthony Renna and Mike. Definitely something if you're not familiar with, get over there. And if you need some equipment, be sure to check out performbetter.com. And we'll see you next week with Adam and Mary Kate Fate. I promise we'll record it this time.